0: Welcome back, everyone, to Yang Speaks. Today, we've got Ken Jong, but first, the man of the hour, Andrew Yang, of course. How you doing, bud?
1: Hey, Zach, the unidentified Zach. He's the unidentified speaking host.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I send the podcast to friends, and then they send it to their parents, and so the the parents' feedback was, who the hell is the other guy talking? (laughs) So I'm Zach. I was Andrew's campaign manager, and my job is to co-host this podcast and mainly get out of the way and let... Yang speak. Uh, what what more did your friends' parents say? <laughs> <laughs> I was. Uh, I thought uh, feedback was great, man. Here's what I'd say. Um, one, numbers were great. We had a ton of downloads. We were number. I think we peaked at number eight. Uh, Whether well, it's globally or nationwide on Apple Podcasts. Um, and the biggest thing I got, Andrew, was how much people missed your voice. Your voice of reason. You just talking about how you see the world. It's a. There's a big need for a trusted, rational voice in the craziest right now. How's, how's quarantine going, man? How's the family? How are the kids? What's going on?
1: Things are generally good. I mean, I can't complain a bit. I'm in a house. I can walk outside. My kids are, uh, generally happy and healthy, uh, getting homeschooled and video online schooling. Uh, Evelyn is a rock star and keeps us all taken care of and, uh, positive. Uh, she's been awesome. If you ever need to be, Confined in a house with someone. I choose Evelyn Yang.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How does one educate a four-year-old remotely? Like, how does that go?
1: With great difficulty. You know, the most fascinating thing I'm seeing is that they have gym essentially online. So it's like this person just kind of drill sergeanting them and like having them do jumping jacks or whatever um, through the computer. And I'm happy to say that the four-year-old is generally into it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and, and you know that they, they do things to get the kid engaged so they play the song you know where the kid's jumping up and down to it or they play simon says or like one of the songs it's very catchy it's like popsicle pop popsicle why don't you like jump up and down and do this thing this is how we popsicle it's like that kind of crap this is how i popsico his hands are high his feet are low and this is how we popsicles.
2: Pop, popsicle pop.
1: Yeah, uh, I've just described the soundtrack in the Yang household, Evelyn's making sure that they're learning, and I'm taking calls, working on uh, some project or other, Uh, we always have something going here at Humanity Forward, Um, about to make another announcement, a series of announcements in the next number of days, I guess I can't be cryptic, but whatever, we're always working on something.
0: No, you've got a lot of updates, and some we'll talk about now. Um... I mean, maybe let's start with um, some current events, things that are going on since our last pod. First things first, you're suing New York. You're suing the New York Board of Elections. Uh, Care to talk about why?
1: Yeah, they pulled the plug on the presidential primary in the state of New York. um, And I had a number of people reach out to me that busted their tails in new york getting hundreds of signatures so we could be on the ballot right and there's really no reason for it because you're conducting um, other races and you can have people vote for president in the same way that they're voting in these other local races so to the extent there's a safety issue uh you know you can do it by mail like many other states have done uh postponing it is not out of the question but just canceling it outright It's really doing a number on uh, people's right to express their, uh, you know, their vote. And for the folks who worked on my campaign tirelessly in New York and other parts of the country trying to get me on the ballot, and then to have that right just taken away for really no reason at all, uh, it's anti-democracy. There's no good reason for it. Uh, Let's just let the people... To have their say, particularly because right. it's not easy to get on the ballot in New York in particular, um imagine being someone who stood outside and gathered signatures on weekends and you know like yeah. your, your nights and days off, and then you eventually get someone on, and then someone's like, "Nope, can't vote uh because <laughs> you know we we just don't think it's a good idea, even though there are other races going on that people will be voting in, so uh, it doesn't make much sense um it doesn't have much
0: rationale uh and i'm very happy to stick up for people's voting rights one of the things that was the hardest part of running for president is physically getting on the ballot and it's like an absurd number of signatures in a tiny window of time for new york so yeah um good for you for doing it um it's also a bad precedent i think like just yeah uh, it's
1: like it's a really bad precedent to be like you know what this time no need no 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 need to vote (laughs) because if if you let that go then like you know then you could end up with some very disastrous situations where people don't think they like what's going to come out in the vote so they come up with some reason not to have it I mean you know you need to and I understand the context and I certainly would not uh let you know just have people vote from the safety of their own home like I'm not out for people doing anything that um poses any kind of risk right um but Other states have had vote-by-mail for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there should be absolutely no no public health risk associated with that. Uh, And there's no rationale for canceling it outright. I mean, in in many instances, some states have uh, postponed it so they could put in vote-by-mail.
0: So I'll say for those of you listening who had a positive reaction to this, thank you. We didn't think that many people would care. We were literally doing it not from a PR angle because that was the right thing to do. and then when it happened, I had the New York Times and a bunch of people calling me. So uh, that was a fun day. Um, congrats, Andrew. Um, I'm going to run down some more stuff that happened this week because I think it'd be fun to get your thoughts. Um, the president, since we've launched the podcast, had announced, it um, said that you, said that he shine Shine should, the light
1: inside. We all know, shine the light inside.
0: <laughs> he said we should inject disinfectant into ourselves, um, causing... Lysol and Clorox to say, please don't inject yourselves with our products. Um, and apparently
1: I saw in Maryland, they got a hundred calls about people who were asking about ingesting it. So uh, I so I have made it a habit not to respond to Trump's stuff because yeah. I think it's just a waste of time. Um, and he's playing the press. He's playing other politicians where if you just respond to like the statement of the day, then you're just chasing Trump around and it's a mm-hmm. loser. And so I didn't say anything about you know, drinking Lysol either, because I'm like, oh, does this really like require a response? But then you (laughs) look up and you see it's like, well, apparently hundreds of people around the country took it seriously. uh, And some people were calling to, you know, get information about drinking Lysol. Uh, And it it reminds you of the fact that people are really uh, desperate for some form of guidance or leadership. And that even if you say something outright bananas, uh, some people will listen and even act on it. Uh, And so... You know, it it's disappointing that we have a leader who actually is giving nonsense advice that could literally poison people.
0: If you're, I, I, there's some people in America that, and a lot of people in America don't trust the media, so like, hey, I'm gonna go to the president himself for the source. And if the source is saying things like that, that's when words really matter. You know certain states are opening early um, and you've got mixed reviews on this. Um, you've got Mayor of New York saying, please stay home. Uh, you've got Georgia saying, let's open everything. Um, where do you fall on this? Um, obviously, that the virus is different in different parts of the country, but it affects us all um, because of travel and transportation and transmission. So what do you, where do you think on opening up and how we scale that up?
1: Well, one, I think it's disappointing that it's essentially being left to governors and states to figure it out. Like I I think it would be helpful to have federal guidelines and say, look, here's the data you should rely upon. Uh, And there is objective data. It's not as robust as you'd like it to be. Uh, But Johns Hopkins has um, an index on cases and the public health threat level in different places uh carnegie mellon released also like a heat map of how many people Mm -hmm. are reporting symptoms so you have at least a couple of data points you can look to as well as obviously the the darkest data points which are how many people showing up in hospitals how many people uh, are requiring massive uh, intervention like uh, where, where they're on ventilators so we have some data to work on and The big missing piece, again, is testing. It's that right Right. now, a lot of these states are making decisions based upon really incomplete data because you don't really know how many people have contracted the virus. Uh, You don't know how many people uh, might be asymptomatic or might already have resistance. We're really fumbling in the dark uh, Mm
0: -hmm. in many respects. Um, And that's the thing that pains me the most. Andrew, our boy, Elon Musk, recently came out on Twitter and said, stay-at-home orders are fascist. And he was very against governments ordering people to stay in their home. You're probably, while we love Elon Musk, you're probably not as extreme on that. Where do you land or do you agree with him on that?
1: Well, I, I don't agree because it's not just you. Like if I go outside, um, and maybe I'm asymptomatic, maybe I infect several people, like while I'm out and about, uh, and so you could say, well, it's my decision. It's like, well, it's not someone else's decision to get infected by me. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. so that there's a real public health uh, issue that affects everybody. The reality is, you can be asymptomatic for days. You don't know uh, exactly what impact you might be having. So, I, I do disagree with Elon on this, though. Obviously, admire and respect him uh, on many, many uh, important fronts because, like that, that guy is, you know, moving our entire world and, and country forward in some ways.
0: Yeah. Your big message in terms of the interviews I've been seeing you take has been this is the time for the federal government to lead and communicate. And that because of the absence of that leadership, you've got states, you've got influential figures, you've got all these different people coming out and trying to pick up the slack. Are you still is that still where you stand?
1: Yeah, I've been concerned that there's a real leadership void in this country for a long time, and I think you're seeing it. And that that isn't just President Trump. It's just that when you look around, uh, Americans don't know who to trust, don't know where to go. Certainly the group of people you hope to trust the most are your government leaders and officials and uh, the Dr. Fauci's and the public health officials. But there, there's been a real gap in leadership for a long time. And I, and there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, you could go into it. And uh, I think my conversation with Ken touches on some of these things. But right. in, or, in order to like ascend uh, in our society over the last number of years and years, um, you've had to become a certain kind of animal, certain kind of instrument. Um, and you'd be following very pro-marketplace rules. Uh, and then your outlook really changes as a result of that. Uh, and then so someone when someone asks you, you're the CEO of a company, and say, "Hey, what should we do about this?" Like you see it through the lens of being the CEO of that company. You see it through the lens of being, you know, the doctor, the government official, right. politician. Like you know, like, like I have to say that, uh, not to say that like everyone's perspective ends up getting distorted, but everyone's perspective does kind of <laughs> end up getting um, getting distorted. So we're looking around, we're not sure who to trust, and certainly, I think President Trump is making this worse by spouting nonsense. But even in the absence of having a a president who's actively misinforming us, uh, you know, I I think there's been a real need for some kind of public trust and unity um, that's been eroding for years. You can see it very clearly that our our trust in our government leaders has been dropping and that was before Trump.
0: Speaking of weird communications or just lack of communication, the government came out this week and said they're... Are ufos and they just admitted to it and apparently we just kind of shrugged um you talk about i think you're the only presidential camp candidate in history to proactively talk about ufos on the trail and talk about area 51. what did you think when that came out
1: i considered saying it's like yeah you know i i knew this <laughs> <What's up? laughs> i i don't know if you haven't seen the footage the footage is very yeah. convincing and keep in mind it's like from the navy or the department of defense um, some F-15 fighter It's like right out of one of those movies where like there's the uh, F-15 fighter pilot and then he sees the UFO and is like, what the heck is that? Like that's yeah. pretty much what the video was <laughs> and it's official. It's a non hoax. Uh, right. You know there aren't that many explanations for it aside from the fact that there's likely um, some objects out there that we can't account for. And you know, then you have to look and it's like, well, what are the realistic explanations for that? Like does some right. other country have the technology to have something like that? Maybe. Um, but you know, n- another plausible explanation is that maybe it's a UFO. Why does that get released now? Distraction? Fun? It is funny what a, a non reaction it got. Um, because we're all like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is part of it. Part of it really is that at this point, um, you know, n- none of us, uh, is, um, that trustful uh, or that Man. trusting in anything. And so you see it and you're like, well, like who the heck knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I mean, this part of what I was saying, it's like, who do you trust? And it's like, at this point, this is like a freaking US military video that's been officially released and said, yep, that, that's real. So this is the, the most, you know, most uniformly verified you can get at this point. Right. Um, and yet we're still like shrugging because we're just used to so much misinformation out there. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more.
0: So this week we've got the one and only Ken Jong on, and you guys had a really fascinating conversation. And one thing that you didn't dive into much in the combo, but I think was important is that. You talk about him. He was a doctor, even though he loved comedy and became a successful doctor because that's what the market was pushing him. And then he found his you know, comedy legs and career later in life on the trail and before you ran for president, you talked about Venture for America, the fact that the market drives our most talented people to a certain place, and it's not always where their passion lies, even where their talents lie. You mind expanding on that? Um, both what you learned with with Venture for America and what you talked about with Ken?
1: And when I was graduating from college, I didn't know what to do. So I went to law school and then became an unhappy corporate lawyer for five months. Uh, and I got paid a six-figure salary and like all the forces were driving me in that direction. And I hated that job and I left and then I left to start a business that flopped. And starting a business was a million times harder than school was. Um, and and I, I felt like the... Market was driving me very, very powerfully in certain directions. Where we used to joke at Venture for America that if you were a smart kid in America today, there was an 80% chance you were going to do one of six things in six places. And so that's banking, consulting, law, tech, uh, medicine, or academia in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, LA, Boston, or DC. Mm -hmm. And you resemble this, Zach. I mean, you're From Connecticut, you know, you went to Duke and then you wound up on Wall Street. Yep. And so Ken resembles that. I mean, Ken grew up in North Carolina and uh, became a doctor in Los Angeles. Uh, I resemble it. Uh, And it's on one hand, you're like, well, what's wrong with that? But on the other hand, uh, it's a zero sum game that if you send all of your top prospects to do certain things, then, you know, their hometowns are going to end up suffering. You're going to wind up with a lot of people trying to squeeze value out of certain types of activities. Let's call it being a hedge fund manager or something Mm -hmm. (laughs) where, uh, you know, and then other problems are not going to get solved. So I think Ken's story really uh, resonated with me because it felt very, very familiar. Uh, I don't know if it felt familiar to you too, Zach.
0: It did, or you have these super talented people. They're creatives, they're artists, they're entrepreneurial, they're hustlers, and there they are, just slinging mortgage-backed securities or derivatives or some sort of financial term someone made up that no one knows what it means except for Wall Street people. It's dark, man.
1: Yeah, it's one reason I really appreciate Ken because him having to, I mean, try and be like a comedian, like or an actor, uh, like as like a real-life doctor. <laughs> I mean, if you yeah. me think about it, that's actually pretty. Uh, bizarre. Like I was joking, it's like imagine showing up to these auditions and then, you know, being in a doctor's
0: outfit and then not <laughs> your being scrubs. a costume.
1: Like it's actually your freaking white coat. Yeah.
0: And you would t- say this on the trails like you would, if you go to these elite schools, you would know, you had no idea when you got there what management consulting was. But by year two or three, you could differentiate between firms.
1: Yeah. And that's not accidental. They spend millions of dollars educating the market, uh, you know, and, and who wins? Like I guess they win, but like who loses? I don't know. Everybody who's not that firm, I guess. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel like Ken's story is really awesome in that he went against the grain. And in his case, uh, it led him someplace really special.
0: I will say this quickly, is that I've been talking to some of my friends on, on Wall Street from, from my last job. and. In this crisis, it's really it pains me to say this, but they're they're fine, like not like they're fine, like, oh, they're rich, they're fine. Like, no, their business is still fine. And that's where some of the government reactions to this have been just so misguided and and wrong, um, because the ones that are hurting are the people um, and the banks will be just fine.
1: Well, th- this crisis breaks my heart on so many levels, but one of the main ones is what you just described, where if you were an entrepreneur going out on a limb the last number of years, you are getting pummeled, you are getting mm-hmm. destroyed. And if you have some, you know, giant banking relationship, uh, you're part of some mega corp, um, you're fine. You know, mm-hmm. just like, well, I'm at home, sort of sucks. Uh, you know, I'm still getting paid, like feel sort of bad for other people. Uh, Meanwhile, the other people are like, what the heck am I going to do? You know, like you just like blasted my business to smithereens. Like, you know, like I don't have the sweet banking relationship. My small business couldn't get a loan. Uh, You you name it. Like the the whole thing, like this is a terrible, terrible time in large part because uh, the people who are least vulnerable are getting hurt the worst. And the people who are in the best positions stay in the
0: best positions. In your conversation with Ken, which is fascinating, you talk about racism towards Asian-Americans right now. Um, and you just launched the All-Americans campaign. Any thoughts on how that landed or, or why you did it?
1: Uh, I'm sure every Asian-American in the country has received, at a minimum, dirty looks over the last number of days if you've been outside. Um, and it's gone all the way up to assaults, beatings, getting cursed out. Uh, people giving you dirty looks and shying away from you, I think, at this point, is routine. Uh, and I've experienced it. Republicans have actually come out and said that we're going to blame China for the virus. And in part, because the, framing it as a foreign effort distracts from Trump's mishandling of the crisis uh, and boosts his chances for reelection. But that also has the effect of increasing xenophobia, making the virus seem like a racialized disease, um, as opposed to a, a natural phenomenon. So if there's something I can do about it, I wanted to do something about it. And the All-Americans campaign is just saying, look, we're all in this together. Uh, This virus knows no race. Um, We should not let this tear us apart. Um, We need to come together and say, we're all Americans. We're all the same to this virus. Uh, And for the fall, we have to not let Trump distract us from the real issues. We lost 70 days where we could have been uh, tracking patients and tracing contacts and building up the capacity of our healthcare system. Uh, and to distract from all that lost time, Trump saying China virus, Republicans are saying, "Oh, blame the the Chinese government." I mean, you know, th- this isn't like a targeted attack on the U.S. In that it's ripped through the entire world essentially at this point. Uh, And you have to compare the US response to other countries response. Like why are why were we so far behind? Why are we number one in cases? Um, So those are the questions. And racializing the virus is a distraction. It does throw Asian Americans under the bus. Um, Racism towards Asians is going to be a problem for a long time in this country. And so I thought if there's something I can do to help, um,
0: I wanted to to help. Andrew, the the All-Americans campaign got tons of cool people and celebrities to get behind it from Megan Rapino to Dave Chappelle and JJ Redick and who will be a guest on this podcast soon what's it like reaching out to all those people is that like herding cats how interested are they
1: I know anyone I reached out to uh was into it because yeah. you know they're like good people and like yeah racism sucks and like you know if I can um play a small part in fighting it uh, they were glad to, except for that one person who will remain nameless. I'm nameless, um, <laughs> that one jerk. Uh, I know who you are. You know who you are. No, I'm mm-hmm. kidding. Um, so, <laughs> so like, uh, but I was really impressed and grateful and gratified because, uh, you know, like Joseph Gordon Levitt and John Leguizamo and uh, Terry Hatcher and and uh, Sophia Bush and all these people. It's like if you're a celebrity, you put your name on something. And there is some risk involved where, you know, it's like the, the thing that I came to mind for me, and I feel bad even referencing it, but it's like the Gal Gadot uh, Imagine video where I feel like the reaction to that was not uniformly positive. <laughs> and so, um, so I really am grateful to everyone who decided to lend a hand to the All-Americans campaign because you know, like you had to trust. And I, I, I hope that we live, lived up to that trust. It seems like everyone was very pleased with um, the first video. It got millions of views, even just on my channels. Um, and I'm happy to say we're working on follow ups uh, with the NBA uh, who want to, to work on an anti-racism campaign with us. So hopefully it'll be an effort that just keeps on
0: growing. So coming up, we've got Ken Jong. He is a Duke grad, so I love him. He's a basketball fan. He's just a genuinely good guy, and coordinating this with him and getting to know on the campaign trail has been fun. He went from doctor to comedian to an actual very good comedian and celebrity. Um, and, Andrew, you got to know him pretty well on the trail, and your conversation, in my opinion, was uh, wide-ranging and fun and, and fascinating.
1: Yeah, Ken's a great guy. We met um, on the trail, and uh, he became a supporter, a member of the Yang Gang. Uh, felt like I had a lot in common. maybe that's flattering me <laughs> but, um, but he's a really thoughtful uh, deep thinking guy. I mean behind like the comedy and like the TV and the rest of it. Um, uh, you know I, I'd say he's almost philosophical um, and uh, you know I really enjoyed sitting down with him. I enjoyed spending any time with uh, with Ken. He's just a, a really fun and
0: awesome guy. yeah, and you guys do talk about the mass singer which I will say this, I'm not one to watch those types of shows, um, but it was on in a hotel in Iowa a few times. That show's amazing. It's low-key hilarious, and I was like bobbing along. I was into it. I was playing the game, so um, good for Ken.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think they took um, that that from like uh, another country. I don't know which one. Did um, they? So, you we stole know? it. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: classic, we stole it. Ken Jong, Andrew Yang, right after this.
1: i'm very happy to welcome to yang speaks my friend the world famous actor comedian singer <laughs> doctor of medicine
2: ken Jung. ken let's give it up thank you andrew it is an honor to be here so thank you so much for having me really really and thank you just uh thank you for all you do brother well, appreciate
1: the heck out of you, and we connected during my campaign. Uh, you're someone who blazed a trail that I don't even think anyone—not only was the trail unblazed—I don't think anyone would think that that trail even would exist. Which is that someone goes from doctor and partner in a healthcare practice to overactor. Okay,
2: yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, I agree. Like no one's ever really made that transition from the healthcare profession to annoying the public in such a rapid degree. <laughs>
1: yes they should name that path after you ken <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like oh my god i was
2: respected and now i'm not so yeah i would love that i would love that it's uh almost like the opposite of a yang gang you know maybe i don't know i don't know um, so you
1: went from the most secure <laughs> valued profession you know it may be an american society to sticking yourself out there on a limb uh trying to break into show business at a time when again i don't think anyone uh, had established that like, there was a template
2: for someone like you. Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, I was interested. Yeah. I went to Duke undergrad and I was, um, interested in, I just caught the acting bug like my sophomore year. And it's funny and I'll even go back to high school. I grew up in North Carolina. And so my senior year in high school, at the end of the, my senior year, there was like this mock male beauty pageant that was like comedy based and, And I had my Napoleon Dynamite moment where I, like, like sang, played piano, did some improv comedy. I I forgot what I did, but it got, like, two standing O's, and it was kind of – I had, like – and I was not a performer. I was not known as a – I didn't do any drama or I didn't do any acting, so I I never thought of myself as – you know, I, I thought of myself as you know a guy trying to trying to get into Duke. <laughs> really, that was my <laughs> old that was my whole definition as a kid. So, what's your goal uh, to get into Duke? And then, what are you going to do after that? I don't know. I just need to get into Duke. You know, so that was kind of my I was kind of taking it one day at a time. And um, but I thought that you know I was definitely on a pre med track uh, when I got into Duke. I wasn't on scholarship, and we weren't like a wealthy family by any means. So it was you know. I, it was kind of mutual, I think, between me and my parents. My dad's a retired economics professor. My mom owned a business, and in North Carolina. And um, did you have siblings? I have siblings. She, uh, yeah, I have a younger sister. She is a uh, science librarian at Wake Forest University, so in North Carolina. So, I, I, so needless to say, I come from a family of academics. And me too. Yeah, and that was my path. If I hadn't gone into med school, my backup plan was maybe get a PhD in biology. So it was not like. Uh, it, you know, performing wasn't in the cards for me in any stretch of the imagination. But by the end of my sophomore year, my second semester, of sophomore year, I took an intro to acting class. Cause I don't know. I just felt compelled to, I don't even know why I think everyone was just kind of like, Oh, you're funny. Or, you know, you just kind of, so maybe were you, that, were you yeah. funny? Like when you were, you know, in high school, anyone think of Ken as the funny kid? no um quite frankly none of my critics think i've ever been funny so you know i I don't think i'm waiting for that to happen really you know ten john still hopefully hopefully here you know i have my coming out party of being funny 50 years of charm as they say but no i i i really thought that uh i i was just uh there's a great line from um uh waiting for guffman is a christopher guest movie and where eugene levy was a dentist he played a dentist who was uh, like a who had a dream of being a stage performer. He goes, "I wasn't the class clown as a kid, but I studied him, and so that was I felt like that, that was like me you. as a kid. Like, yeah, like I loved comedy, but I was a stressed out kid just trying to trying to get into a good school. That really was me in a nutshell. I was just trying to do my best in every." Every class I had, and I was really too stressed out to be a class clown. <laughs> I wasn't relaxed enough because part of comedy is being relaxed, and I—I I don't think I was relaxed as a kid.
1: <laughs> so then you got to Duke. You took this acting class. Did you do any improv comedy or anything like that uh, through your college career?
2: No, I kind of. We we part of theater is doing improv acting exercises, and I just um. So I, I would improvise in certain acting games that we would have, and and I just had a natural proclivity towards comedy. And it, even then, I mean, and then I started doing musical theater, and uh, they have a really great musical theater company, Hoof & Horn at, at Duke, and so I would do that, I would do Hoof and & Horn, and... Um, and then, dude – and then I was uh, – I, I actually applied to drama school, and I got accepted. Really? But, yeah. And um, – but they were – that's where I had my crisis of uh, of a crossroads uh, because there was a fork in the road because I was either going to go pre-med and, and continue on because I was taking organic chemistry my sophomore year. And then I – or I could go into drama class where you have to take you, – you have a drama lab. Your whole life is – basically um, it, it is all drama I mean all your courses all your electives everything's geared so um, and I, I remember the head of um, Duke Drama saying we, we think you could do both and then and I was like, No, I, there's no way I could do both. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the bandwidth. I'm not that, you know, You're like, uh,
1: incorrect, <laughs> incorrect.
2: I even even at 18, 19 years old, I was painfully aware of my limitations. And I knew that I did not have the natural aptitude um, to fully I, maximize potential in both areas. So it it was really hard, man. I I, I made a very difficult choice uh, after discussing with my parents, and of course they were like, you know, you know, go with something. You mean your parents
1: sp- didn't come down hard for theater? <laughs> They're <were>
2: like, son, <laughs> you <laughs> you instead of waiting instead of waiting for Godot, you should wait on your premed. No, they didn't tell me that. So they were they were like, um, they were, they were definitely like. But my dad is a very enlightened cat, where he. He, he re- we really broke it down, and he was like, "Do do you think you?" He, he even said, "Like you know, in order to kind of succeed in 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 the show business, you either got to move to New York or L.A. And do you think you're ready to do that? Do you think you really could handle all that rejection because you will be rejected?" And my dad would come to all my plays. I mean, he came. He was a big supporter and still is. I mean, we talk daily. I mean, we're still like best friends because he's been very, like all, all the articles, practical sounding advice. Yeah. Yeah. And all the articles you see right here, these are like my dad early on in my career, he would cut out these articles of his local paper and frame them and send it framed. He wouldn't send me the article so i get framed. He just sends it framed. So I'm here in my office. So my dad, like, to this day, still archives. I'm like, you know what? You could just send it at a, as a as a JPEG. And he's like, what's a JPEG? So I don't know. He doesn't know these things. So I just let it be. And um, I was like, you know what? He let me do this. So, you know, good on him. Let him frame oh, away. Oh, man. I mean, those That's, that's <laughs> yeah, touching. It's very touching. And it and, and it keeps me grounded. And, and my dad was, um, no, he really he really helped me make my own decision which i give him credit for he he said do you you know just think about your chances he goes he cuz he said to me i don't deny that i don't deny that you're talented you are you're ex- exceptionally talented i just don't know if the rest of the world will accept that you know and yeah, this, this
1: is literally the '80s too, right? Where, yeah, it was '88, '89,
2: yeah. and he was yeah. like, and I was like, yeah. I, I he goes outside of Pat Morita at that time, there was really no one who looked like me, you know, on the screen. So it so it was a hard choice, and um, Kim Jong, son of Miyagi. <laughs> what young <laughs> son of me. I, oh man, I didn't know you're into I didn't know you're into movie PR marketing, Andrew. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I just I mean, I'm just
1: imagining like the, <laughs> like
2: the, the, the showbiz
1: roles for Asian
2: My manager will be like, "How did they, How does Andrew how did this conversation with Andrew? Oh man, he really wants to spin off a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff." <laughs> uh but um no, it it really was um it was a it was a difficult time for me in college, man, and and even in med school, because well, you, med school would be
1: murder. Because like at least in college, you can still do some stuff on the side. But like med school, there is no way you're doing a whole hell of a lot aside from just yeah. grinding and uh, memorizing. Because that stuff's brutal for the first. stuff's
2: brutal. And yeah. and that's why I gravitated towards stand up in in med school because I couldn't do any theater. And so I just kept that up for throughout med school and then through my residency. And um, when I finished my residency, I moved out to L.A. In the hopes of just trying to continue, you know, like my stand up and comedy aspirations. And then one thing led to another. I was working part time at Kaiser Permanente and HMO here in L.A. For a while, I was really comfortable if that was kind of my legacy, because I met my wife, Tran at Kaiser and. At that time at Kaiser, I was known as this doctor comedian and, you know, almost a mini celebrity within my HMO. Like, oh, I I had a niche for myself, you know, and and I had a full-time practice and a full-time panel and I liked what I did. And, you know, I'd have a bunch of my friends from Kaiser. I still keep in contact to this day and they would come to my shows and, you know, kind of like-minded medical professionals who just loved comedy and we'd all hang out. And my wife was one of them. She was part of that clique of friends that I had. And we no started, way, you yeah. had
1: Kaiser groupies coming to your club. I wouldn't club, say Kaiser groupies. We're just your future me, wife. That's the greatest me, thing of all
2: time. To me, it was more like a Kaiser squad. I think, you know, I, I think it wasn't, it definitely wasn't a groupie thing. It was more like Taylor Swift and her squad of friends just coming out almost for moral support, you know, and then I was, and then I was dating my wife at that time. I was like, I felt like I had the best of both worlds. That was actually a very comfortable space for me to, to occupy. She always thought of me as a comedian first. And that was, she was really the only person at that time to really see kind of my true essence, but that's she, beautiful. Yeah. And then what by the time I so I started auditioning for for like in my like after I, I had an agent um, who would get me auditions um, after work and I could like maybe audition for Will and Grace at that time or some other sitcoms and I started booking stuff just I just I just started booking stuff. I booked a part on The Office uh, back in 05 and um, and then later that led to knocked up and that was kind of my big role where I played a doctor delivering Katherine Heigel's baby and I shot that uh, during a vacation week. It was only like a two or three day role and and then it was that point I knew I kinda had to leave. You know, it was like, okay, this is time where the college kid goes pro and how did yeah. your family react your
1: parents because I'm sure your dad remembered that conversation from literally like sophomore year in college and then like there you are almost full circle like at that point was were they excited
2: and on board or uh, were there still anxieties? Oh my dad yeah when I told my dad he said he's he was amazing because he said um, what does Tran think you know and I said, well Tran she's the one who encouraged me to quit and he said, if you have support from your family, then you have my support tran is now your family so you have my support and that is the most generous most loving act a parent could give a child you know who an adult child and to have that trust and i'm sure he was nervous and he me discl- and you know and he told me he was you know which but we we were always together on it you know i never i never had that feeling of like you don't get me dad you don't understand you know what I'm, so there was none of that none of that drama i don't I, I think that i don't operate well in those situations so i really think that uh you know my parents also supported me fully you know and you know
1: ken so there are so many parallels between fighting and arts and entrepreneurship uh like where there are so many people that have this side hustler, or side gig that they are balancing with a full time job, uh, and you think about that as time, where it's like, okay, maybe I can balance these these things. But the truth is that you you're never going to have a chance to really succeed at this other pursuit unless you commit yourself to it. Uh, you know, and 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 it's not just the time; it's like almost like your spirit or energy. Uh, you know, like the when you're committed to this path, whether it's Starting a business or uh, becoming an actor in your case, or kicking the shit out of someone if you're a UFC fighter, <laughs> like like that. That like it's really really hard to balance that with showing up uh, and doing a nine to five. And, and that that's something. And when I talked to people who, because I, I spent years uh, helping uh, mentor and cultivate entrepreneurs, and and one of the things that you Encounter all the time is that there are these people that have dreams and then they have a day job and the day job sometimes pays them a lot. And then they're trying to balance the two things. And it's a really tough challenge because a lot of the time, whatever it is they're working on, their new business does not have the ability to pay their rent or pay like certain or support a family or, you know, you know but this new business will never have a chance unless they go after it full force. Uh, and at some point, uh, you know, you have to jump if you're gonna commit, or you have to not jump and just say, it's like, okay, I'm content with uh, not seeing this business
2: or pursuit really have a chance. Absolutely, I mean, it, there there was no way, there was no way I could have done my day job um, and then book the hangover and then get on community. That was not, that never, I only got, I only got those big breaks because I, you know, I went full throttle on it. You know, I, I only because the trajectory, even I knew artistically, there's no way I, it, it's so competitive to, uh, and next to impossible to, to book a role on movies and see and TV shows. It's so hard. And the, 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 the odds are so low. Yeah. Yeah. That you have to really devote your whole passion and your energies into it. Well, there, and, yeah.
1: There's so many parallels between, uh, art and entrepreneurship, it's I mean, it's really the same thing, honestly. And Show one of business, the, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that I learned when I was uh, running Venture for America is that artists and entrepreneurs actually have the same impact on a community where if you have a high artist density, then economic development follows mm. in the same way that if you have high entrepreneurship density, then economic development follows. When I found that out, I was blown away. I was like... because. Art, instead of thinking of it as like this side thing that's like economically marginal, it's actually like a, an economic driver. And there are so many parallels to the creative process and entrepreneurship or starting a business or running an organization or presenting a vision and getting people excited and raising money for it and all of that, uh, that there are so many successful entrepreneurs I know who started out as artists.
2: It's funny, even in even as a doctor... I found like the really good doctors made made their own work, their art. I really thought of medicine if you were fully vested in medicine, if you knew your medicine inside and out, you knew your vocabulary, you knew how to treat, you knew how to manage a patient. The next level is having your own style of management, how to manage patients, how to manage patient care. And each doctor had their own unique style. And the ones that were really good physicians knew knew that. And so I felt there was kind of, there was that philosophy of making your work, your art, you know? Um, And so. Like the the integrated self. The integrated self. Yeah, Yeah. you're bringing all of
1: yourself to it. Whether it's treating patients or producing a TV show or starting a business or whatever it is, like, you know, if if you're bringing your whole self to it, then it's not just following a bunch of Steps
2: like it, it becomes yeah. you, and and it's funny because when you go into the business world, you're looking for outside the box ideas, ways to shift the paradigm, ways to raise some idea next level, and it's not surprising to me that when you think about it, anyone who goes into business who has a career as an artist, they're the ones that that can make the biggest strides. You know, it's it's not about sometimes it's not about reinventing; it's just kind of refocusing, you know, something. It could be some sometimes the adjustments can be minor and that just makes a big difference. And some in that's
1: And it's really rare because most people you meet compartmentalize to be able to do their jobs. You know what I mean? They like show up and be like, okay, I'm gonna do this and then when they punch out, then they just completely leave it behind. I mean that that's that's the way a lot of people approach their job. That's one of the things I struggled with when I was an unhappy Attorney uh, for five whole months, where I was like, man, like, uh, you know, I'm. I don't think I'm gonna succeed at this because the last thing I want to think about when I'm not in the office is freaking like whatever, like contracts or like legal work I'm assigned. So, like, I need to find something I care about uh, more deeply, uh, and that's one of the the goals. Hopefully, you know, it's like, I, and this is such a terrible time. Like, one of the things that breaks my heart about the coronavirus crisis is I think it's doing a number on the entrepreneurial tendencies of an entire generation. Like it is like people who are out on a limb taking risks, starting small businesses right now, destroyed. Like if you're a young person, you're seeing your future become much more insecure And there's some like bullshit around entrepreneurship that's like, oh, like when things are terrible, like, you know, great entrepreneurs will emerge. It's like,
2: yeah, (laughs) like, like, yeah, maybe, you know, yeah, there's an argument to be made sometime in recession or depressionary times. Yeah, you you can have that kind of outburst of ideas, but not but during a pandemic, you know, no one really knows right now, man. It's just like you said it it, there is there is a there is a putting a pin in the entrepreneurial spirit right now. You know, because people dream of moving to the big city from a small city. But if you're moving to a large city right now where you have that density, where you're at more risk of getting coronavirus, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, if my kids were older and and they were in that position of moving or, or wanting to find that vocational, if they were on that vocational bubble right now, I, I would tell them, I, I would just think of it as, Kind of a, a suspension of it right now. Of we hope, we hope it's know. a
1: suspension. Yeah,
2: I mean, well, it, I mean, we need a, well not to pivot right now, but um, medically speaking, I mean, we we talk about serologies and everything, but we need a vaccine. I mean, we need a vaccine. I I, I don't know why you know, um, and I know why, because people say vaccines 12 to 18 months away, but I saw something on CNN that was the NIH lead researcher on vaccine research was like, in a perfect world without any major stumbling blocks, you could have a vaccine available by September for healthcare workers, and, and it could be massively distributed in spring of 2021. I know there's a rough, you know. No,
1: that's the most not, optimistic thing but, I've heard but in quite see, some time. But
2: see, that's where our leadership needs to go and say, hey, the end, the only way for economic recovery is for healthcare recovery. OK, yes. and then all roads lead to vaccines and there and using serologies as the new driver's license of helping to reopen that economy. So there is, you know, if I were leader, I would be putting as much pressure as I could on the CDC and NIH. Get as many because there there are tons of companies right now that are doing vaccines in the states and ton and virtually you know so many countries working on that, you know and and the virus is. Genetically stable. At least this version of it is. There's slight mutations of that virus, but it's pretty stable. And then studies show even the SARS virus, that's a cousin of COVID 19. Um, people who have who had antibodies to SARS, those antibodies remained in their in their body for up to three years. So I'm just saying. I'm not saying this is all anecdotal data. I'm not. You know, I'm not a physician anymore. You know, I'm just I'm just a I'm just the dumbest judge of the mass Singer. So what do I know? But I do think that there's there th- there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That's not false hope or raising up and that well, that that is that, the real light at the end of the tunnel. That's the, the, real, light the real light that that, yeah. that I that I believe. If you want to give people hope right now, it's don't deny science. Talk about when the end all be all of science. Will happen. And I think that if you could put as much public pressure to super duper fast track that and to make it globally inclusive, to fund that federally, you know, take the middleman out, fund that, you know, federally and subsidize that. And then you got. You got you got something where uh, we got a shot at what I believe is a genetically stable virus where you can build a vaccine around that. So the problem with vaccines is like the flu, like the flu vaccine, the virus mutates every year. So it's hard. So you're basically anticipating what kind of strain of that virus is going to be the following year. But what we need now is just like it's stable right now. So let's work on that. And we anticipate a second wave irregardless of Georgia, Tennessee, you know, or South Carolina reopening. I mean, the most likely we anticipate a second wave. So we're going to arm ourselves with medications, you know, like remdesivir shows high promise in some trials. And then we'll arm ourselves with more testing. Antibody testing is, is going to be uh, really, really ramped up. And then, you know, Let's talk about that vaccine, you know, and if I'm wrong, if there's someone out there listening and who who I'm sure knows way more than I do, like, well, you're wrong, Kim, because, you know, vaccines take five years to to typically. And I get that. And and if I am wrong, I stand corrected. And I'm, I'm and I'm happily I will happily eat crow on that. You know, if no, I'm wrong, you're 100 percent right that the
1: vaccine is the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And then the, the question is, what is that time frame? And then what is that period between now and then look like? Uh, so certainly that's tremendous news that uh, that we might be able to beat the timelines that I, I'd heard as like the most optimistic of like, let's call it 12 to 18 months. Well,
2: and I understand why that those numbers are being thrown around, because as a physician, I don't want to be telling someone, you know, hey, hey, you know, it, it's it's the physician's nature to give conservative estimates you know, there's a, there's a, like my wife, she's a breast cancer survivor, cancer free. Now she had a 23% chance of survival, you know? So we're going to talk about that and say this, the prospects are very dim, but we'll, we'll do the best we can. And our oncologist who's still our friend we still keep in contact, you know, we got it when they painted us this grim outlook. Okay. I get it. And then, then actually you just stop thinking about the stats and then you start thinking, let's get those treatments out as fast as possible. So to me, speed is of the essence of what we're obviously not doing a good job of. You know, I don't care who tells me what, we're not doing a good job of getting in front of it. So it's it's really, yeah. There, there's a lot of things I see of my form, you know, my former profession that, you know, I get frustrated because you know it's been it's been 14 years since I practiced and. It's and, and all i do know, i don't know a lot of things but i know and i've forgotten a lot of things but i know something like this you have to act quicker than quick and um you know we just got to we just got to step that up you know
1: yeah that that that's like the light at the end of the tunnel if we yeah. can get the vaccine developed then that's the game changer we need and even before then like you said there are treatments there are things that we're going to have to bring to bear because it's not realistic to say hey everyone stay in your house for 12 months or whatever it is. Uh, you know, it's like, like where like some people that might even be the right thing. Like if you're an at risk population, maybe you are going to stay in your house for um, the foreseeable. Um, but they're going to be at least parts of, uh, of the economy that we're going to have to try and uh, reopen before we have a vaccine.
2: Uh, you know, it's like that. That's that to me is really like the difficult set of choices you have to make, right? And and I'm not a politician, so I wouldn't. You know, that that that's the nuance of you know public policy that I have no idea of of how to manage or how to how to regulate. The only thing I can see from you know uh, a physician's perspective, 14 years removed, is that you know we we need to have either some infrastructure of serologies in place to say who. Is safe to reopen that economy? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, if there is no vaccine, you know, in place, we need to, we, we need to have that. Like, do you have antibodies? Do you like, have IgG? Yeah. Do you have antibodies to this where you can safely reopen that economy? Now, there's been some study out that came out the other day in Santa Clara that they even estimate in in, in Santa Clara there might be eighty five fold of people who may have been positive for coronavirus. For every one person that tested positive in Santa Clara, so anywhere from fifty to eighty-five fold of that incidence, so that that's good news, you know. So that means that there might be a lot of people with that antibody. So I, I, I think we, you know, it would be even better news if we documented that. It would yes, be even better news if we, news if we instead of extrapolated that data, it would be better news if we actually had that knowledge for sure, because everybody just like in business, just like even in show, business. everyone's worried about the numbers. You don't want yep. the numbers. You don't want the incidents to be so high because it'll look bad for the country. No, you can flip that model around. This is a way to be artistic about it. This is a way to integrate yourself. You can flip that number around. Yes, we have millions who are positive, but look at that death rate. Look at that mortality rate now. It's so low, relatively speaking. So it's like, then you, you really get from a public health policy, from an economic policy, it's all about that vaccine, we baby. Just, we you got to get need, that recovered. More. You know, you, you, yeah. you recover the health, you recover the economy. And I don't know why we, we that point needs to be hammered so hard. You know, and there are people who have that opportunity to do data. that. You know, they have yeah. people who have that opportunity to do that, and they're 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 missing the dunk right now on 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 the healthcare recovery. That can satisfy everybody wins. You know what I mean? So everybody yeah. wins. we need
1: we need yeah. more testing, and we need to go full throttle uh, after the vaccine uh like I, those two things are anyway more political correct. tips
2: from the dumbest judge for the mass singer after this and the unicorns tory spelling i'm that's I'm all sure I know. you
1: i'm sure you are at worst the second dumbest judge on mass singer
2: <laughs> thank you andrew it's good to have an ally in the room
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend
2: today.
1: So, you genuinely don't know who's under the mask. You're no. just like, on the uh, mask singer,
2: we know nothing. We, we like the Nick Cannon, the host, doesn't know anything. It is about a double blind, randomized controlled trial of entertainment as it gets. No one, no one know. Like, there are only a handful of people that know at any given time. And it's, uh, we have been shocked. So, like, my favorite episode was when you had, um, when you had Lil Wayne. Uh, on the Super Bowl third season premiere, Jamie Foxx was a guest judge. Jamie Foxx and Robin Thicke, the other judge, they both work with Lil Wayne. They recorded with Lil Wayne. and Robin, <laughs> so they know him well. Yeah, and Robin Thicke, who, is one of, who has become a really good friend of mine, um, he, to this day, still kicks himself for not. He did five songs with Lil Wayne, and he was so upset with himself. And he prides himself. If you watch him as a singer, he will close his eyes and he, he is quietly. Um, he's quietly, you know, intense about it where he'll like, listen to it and be like, you know, he, he has this oral gift, you know, where he can recognize a voice. He and Nicole Scherzinger because they're career musicians. They have, they have gifts that beyond my comprehension. And so for him not to recognize Lil Wayne, um, that really, <laughs> that really bites out eats out of it. <laughs> even to this day, I know Robin very well. <laughs> he it even to this day,
1: <laughs> that's, that's really funny. Uh, So you are one of the most prominent Asian Americans, uh, in, the, certainly in the entertainment industry, like, you know, maybe even, uh, in any industry, uh, and you and I both know that racism and hostility towards Asian Americans has surged with this virus because there are so many people that unfortunately associate, uh, the virus with, uh, people, uh, who look like us. I mean, China, yes, but you know, most Americans, if they look at someone uh, of Asian descent, they, they don't exactly distinguish that much between uh, Chinese, Chinese-Americans, yeah. uh, Korean-Americans and everyone else. Um, no, it, it's it, it's something that I have to say, uh, it took me a, a second to figure out just how bad it was. Um, and what what really hit me beyond my own experience of just getting dirty looks out in public when I have a mask on and, you know, it's not clear who I am. Um, was the CEO of the crisis text line told me that the proportion of Asian Americans that use the service went from 5%, which is what we are in the population, uh, to 13%, which is two and a half times what we are in the population. Um, and that's on top of a doubling of traffic generally during the crisis. Uh, and and it, it's sort of, uh, I mean, it, like when I heard that, I, I got this sinking feeling in my chest and my, my gut, I was like, Oh my God, like that, that is the worst thing that there's so much pain and fear and anxiety. Uh, and then I said, well, it's like, I'll have to do what I can, uh, about it.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, of course I have very, I mean, you know, I have very strong feelings about that. Like, you know, even, even some of the push against, you know, um, it's almost like this post ironic, uh, backlash of people calling it the Chinese virus and Bill Maher saying it's not, you know, it's not racist, you know, with all due respect, I don't need a white guy telling me it's not racist. It's racist. It's a dog whistle for racism. And it's one thing to evolve and say, i you know, even the, and I'm aware that the mainstream media had used the word Wuhan virus and maybe even the word Chinese virus. But once they saw the incidence of racism rise against Asians, Asian Americans, Asian doesn't matter, resident aliens, then they stopped using the word. So it's okay to evolve and then not use the word right now. But then for people in charge to insist on using that word after documented cases against Asian Americans... That's a dog whistle, and that is something I'll never accept. And it's something that um, is racist, and it's something that has a racist undertones, and there's no other way around it. So well, yeah, I mean, it, it was in a
1: Trump campaign ad. You know, it's like like they're just so the way that Trump is trying to frame it is as the uh, China virus and a foreign effort, and uh, and then that takes attention away from the fact that he so badly botched. The response to the virus, like I, I genuinely think that an attempt to racialize this virus as the Chinese virus is a key component of his uh, re-election campaign, and that if it's not seen as this foreign
2: effort, uh, then it's going to be harder for him to defend his performance. I think it's a way to distract from the fact that you know that that they've been slow to respond, and so you know you have these. You have some fake outs, you have some dog whistles, and sometimes we take the bait and sometimes we don't. You know, it's like I'm a big NBA fan. So if you're going to throw like a basketball pass dog whistle this way, and then it's, you, you want to you play defense and say that's wrong, but you don't want to, you know, but you still have to keep track of where that – you know that political spotlight is, and not take away from the fact that look, we we all need to do a better job with this. You know, we all need to do a better job. You know, with with handling this, and we all have evolved. You know, I'm sure all of us at one point in time underestimated this. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say that. It's not about you know, because the like as a doctor, if if some medical. I don't know. If something out of the blue happened that even a doctor couldn't see, do you really want the patient to hear the doctor say, ain't my fault, yo? You know, it's not going to, you know, like, come on, dude. Come on. Be in charge. Act like a leader. Take care of your lives. You know what I mean? Like, just just be in charge. Yeah, that's part of it, man. It's like if an ordinary
1: citizen underestimated this virus, that person's not in charge of protecting the country from a pandemic. You know, like there, there are people whose job it is to actually be vigilant about this sort of thing uh, and could have taken actions that would have dramatically reduced the loss of life, reduced the economic harm. Uh, you know, like that, I mean, I, I ran for president, as we all know, like, like the, my dearest wishes that I'd been president while this virus was germinating because I genuinely think uh, we could have done a whole lot about it. Uh, and some people who are dead right now would be alive today, uh, you know. Some some of like the the people that have had their lives destroyed, like might be in a better spot today. But you know, obviously that that's just a fantasy. Uh, right now, I mean, my attention's on how to get us through this time and then try and rebuild on the way out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's again, it's about the science. It's about not denying the science. It's about a vaccine. It's about serologies. And what I worry about what's happening right now in Georgia and Tennessee and South Carolina, you're going to see a couple of weeks when they reopen it, They'll be like, man, no harm, no foul. It's not bad. It's not bad right now. And then I worry about other states following suit. Yeah, you're right. It's not too bad. And that third and fourth week, because those incubation days are anywhere yeah, from 14 to like 21 days. It's like a three days. to four week law. Like, yeah, because like. those incubation days are 14 to 21 days. Then I worry about a, a spike in cases. And then what I really worry about is, is, is more mortality. And so, but by that time, you'll have seen all the dominoes of other states following suit, saying, because in that two week window, you're saying, it's not so bad. That's what I worry about. And it's what Fauci says. I want to be accused of overreacting right now. I'm not a vocal guy. I don't vocalize. I'm not like that guy that goes on, uh, I'm not trying to do this to make myself heard. I'm not trying to do this to be famous I already am famous I'm a guy who is just <laughs> worried medically yeah you're just about, a just, about our country yeah. I mean I'm just me too that's all it is because this virus doesn't know no bounds this virus is not a registered libertarian it is not like it has no political suit it's like the you know when you're a doctor taking care of patients I don't like, when I was practicing, I don't think, is that a Republican or a Democrat? Because that'll change my algorithm. We just look at them as patients, as humans that we have to treat. And the the reason why there's of any country that deals with overwhelming uh, mortality is because the hospitals are being overwhelmed. You don't have the resources yeah. at any one given time to take care of it. So that's why it's, you know, it's the lesser of the evils to... Be bored at home is to hate being at home, and to you know is is is, you know to watch Tiger King again. You know that's it's it's like the lesser of the evils, and and it's to be bored because um, community on Netflix now, I believe community on Netflix. Yeah, you could you know, and you know that that, I love Fauci because he was like the problem with the pandemic is if you do everything right and if you flatten that curve, everyone's going to accuse you of overreacting. You know, everyone's going to accuse. So because If you have, if you have saved the world, everyone's going to be like, huh, good. I didn't notice. And, and, and then, you know, and then the healthcare professional will be like, you're welcome. You know what I mean? It's just like, that's, that's what you want. You want the world, you know, you want the world to say, I didn't notice. You didn't do anything. And then for the healthcare professions, the people on the front line saying, we'll take that as, as a thank you. You know what I mean? That, that it's, it's, it's. It's hard to understand and it's hard to contextualize, you know. But and and I and I get it. And and you know, after thirty-one days, everyone's going to get cabin fever. Who doesn't? You know, everyone's going to get sick of it. I I understand that, you know. And I, I I truly I truly do, you know. And that's and I understand. You know, I'm not I'm not you know way more about this than I do. You know, but. You know, these businesses, the small businesses, you you know, you. I, I understand the collapse of the small. My mom owned a small business. I, I understand that. So, you know, hopefully that bill that was just passed, you know. You know, for, to age yeah, so a bit, Well, it, you would know yeah. more about that than I do. I literally am an idiot when it comes to those things. So I I don't know anything. I only know I only know a couple of things: overacting and a little bit of medicine. That's really the only thing I know. <laughs> well,
1: what, what you what you put your finger on is that uh, we need to trust science. We need to trust facts, yeah. uh, and uh, that trust has been yeah. unfortunately eroding for years. And we're politicizing decisions right. that really have. Very little basis in politics. Uh, they they have every basis in medicine, public health, right? Infection rates, testing rates, facts like, like you know that those things uh, are objective. Like you said,
2: that there is really no ideology associated with the virus. Exactly, and, and to get and to get into the nuance with it, you know, according to CNN, they're like, it, well, we're really at the IMHE data that this COVID projection map that I follow every day, like. You know, what I last heard was it was Montana, it was Vermont, it was Hawaii and West Virginia. Those four states could theoretically start relaxing stay-at-home restrictions on May 4th. And then, to me, if everyone was behind that ideology, and then to have you, people like you, people in Congress, politicians, debate How to roll that out, or whether or not. Maybe people want to stay at home, maybe people want to relax, and to have an educated debate on when to roll out those four states, have at it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know these things, you know, that I don't know. But we all have to operate from a fulcrum of science first, then argue later. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, because. It, that's what the beauty of politics is—is is how to divvy up the pie or when, <laughs> when to serve the pie. You know, <laughs> the beauty of politics Sorry. is really, to me, is having a pie and how to how to distribute it, how to how how to either to bake more pies or how to serve pieces of that pie and and, and how big that piece is. But I, you know, that to me, I have no idea how what even to do. But well, that was the know, basis
1: of my campaign, which was. Uh, you know, a thousand slices of pie to every American uh, every month. We just, we're going to deliver pie uh, everywhere, you know, like apple pie, blueberry pie, pumpkin pie, whatever pie you wanted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm love, I'm with you I'm like, where, where, if we can grow the pie that, and the, 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 the I thing am that, so
2: hungry right now. I don't even know why I'm just so hungry. That's,
1: that's what. That's actually who's sponsoring this uh, particular podcast. It's uh, Sarah Lee. No, I'm
2: kidding. Sarah Lee. <laughs> <Thanks> <laughs> I to,
1: just thought of whatever frozen yeah. pie manufacturer. Welcome you, I think to the Sarah Lee
2: episodes. Andrew Yang podcast. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And then you have like. The and lo- then I like hold should a little right logo here. like over there, like you know, on the lower third of the screen, little logo.
0: We'll so, work on that sponsorship for this episode, guys. Thank you, Zach. No, so, but, but,
2: Duke. But
1: you're. <laughs> but you're uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you you you're right that these political decisions are unfortunately going to be more and more central to everything because we're dealing with 22 million unemployed Americans we're dealing with massive massive public health crisis that's going to roll on for months um for better or for worse the decisions that our government officials make are going to be central to how the economy uh, recovers like the decisions that are getting made are going to be life and death for, uh, months to come. It's funny, Ken, cause you know, people know like I, I'm not a career politician, obviously. And then I ran for president. Um, and now I, now I, I think I'm something of like a hybrid, honestly, but one of the things that I know uh, is true is that government's going to be the center of our, uh, decision-making for the foreseeable future. And it's going to be the center of our universe for years to come. And that, that's not something I'm happy to announce.
2: I mean, I think that we just need a system. I'm only operating just only medically. Cause that's the only thing where I have any, I, whether I'm remotely qualified to speak on, it's just, you know, from what I understand, like with the, with the swine flu with H1N1 you know they let science dictate the policy and and I think then I, I just think right now in this specialized case you need to have the experts dictate the policy and then and then that's where it, it, it government can be good if we're all acting on the same page you know and and, and even if you're different parties agreeing to disagree you know there there there's there there's certain things like in a time of a crisis where we can all just agree to disagree, you know, and that's okay. But I, I think that right now there's a disagree to disagree to disagree that I, I just, it's just <laughs> we, I don't we, even understand that disagree. I disagree with. You know, I don't understand it and I'm not smart enough to understand that. And, that, and so to me, you know, you just want a system in place. But at, at the end of the day, even despite all this talk, I just want people to get better that that's the end of the day. I just want people to get better. That's all I care about. I just want people, you know, um, we all know people who are affected with COVID-19 and you know, I just want, I just want people to get better. That that's really it. It's a
1: healer in you, Ken. I mean, you know, uh, it's so clear that despite the fact you haven't practiced for years, like you still have this passion in your voice when you talk about a lot of uh, these issues around health and medicine—it's
2: it, really human. Oh, thank you, brother. I just, yeah, no, I'm. to think maybe it's just, um, maybe it's because I'm sitting here and watching, two, I'm watching news round the clock. <laughs> you know, it's not, I should be watching myself on a mass singer monitor, critiquing my choices. You know and then, then maybe I'll shut up, you know, go back on a, on a on a on a T on a film set and then, you Ken, know, Ken distra- hey, distract him from the news, you know, give him a line of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: I will I just want to throw the shout out here. Uh, Ken Jong's Netflix special was tremendous. So if you haven't oh, seen it, you thanks, check brother. It
2: out. thank you very much. That was a love letter to my wife. Um it was really about because uh, she's a breast cancer survivor, like yeah, she is. Uh, yeah, she's 10 years going on. Yeah, 10 years cancer free. And so it. Or no, 11 years cancer free. So it. The the club where I perform my Netflix special was that club where she first saw me do stand up. What I was no telling way. Yeah, really? That's so So awesome. That was. So personal. There was a lot of. And the director of it was John Chu, directed Crazy Rich Asian. So there was a. So there was a lot of. There's a lot of personal moments, you know, uh, of, of having Tran and Tran was in the audience. And that was, uh, and I give John to, he's a, really a dear, good, dear friend of mine. He was, he was like, I, he, that was his idea. It was like, I want Tran in the audience and, and I want this to really to be, you know, I want to highlight, you know, cause that was the most important, the most important thing about that special was the ending, which is really, it's a love letter to my wife with, um, with some jokes in between, you know that that's really what it was. And so it, that I credit to John for focusing, you know, getting the camera on Tran and, you know, looking back, it really is like a nice, it's a nice little time capsule of kind of it was more like a one man show than a stand up act. It's kind of like little auto, autobiographical, really. That's, that's you know, what I'm it kind of I'm going to
1: say this as your friend, Ken. Yeah. I've obviously seen you perform in uh, uh, movies and TV shows but uh, i i felt like that stand-up special uh was my favorite thing i'd seen you in wow that's
2: that's that that's a very i really appreciate that more than you know man because uh i i it's funny like i don't have you know i I don't have the same i don't know i've always thought of myself as an actor first and a stand-up second so i always thought stand-up is kind of like it's like playing defense in basketball. You just have to work really, really hard at it. You have to really want it. You know, people like Chappelle, you know, who is just, you know, he's our generation's Richard Pryor. You know, the words can't express how much I love Chappelle. And, you know, he's, he's a big influence on all of us. So uh, watching – and I actually got – I had a, I had the I had a privilege of watching Chappelle at a benefit a year ago and, um, and just watching him live just uh, – it's like – watching mozart man it just he just makes it look there are people out there i had to work hard at it and i still do stand up is something that doesn't come easy to me but uh but but watching Chappelle, who was born to do this and watching him work it's i mean he literally i can i literally see him write jokes from the stage i I just know it you know without even asking i just know what he's doing and it's uh there's a talent there and he just knows how to use his instrument and you know, you talk about integrative self. There is no one in, in comedy that can that knows his self, you know, and can integrate it better than Dave Chappelle, for real.
1: Yeah, I had the same experience in Iowa where he he performed yeah. uh, for the the campaign, and you were just like, "Holy shit!" Like, you know, I, I feel like I'm watching a master of his craft at the height of his power. Yeah, uh, it, it's bu- yeah. It,
2: it's exhilarating to watch. It's like, wow, he just. He just knows exactly who he is. He's got, it's a, it's a bit of everything. And, and to circle back, it really is about, you don't know those things until you dive deep and you, you do this for a while, full time, and you experience the highs and lows that Chappelle himself has experienced, you know. You don't get good until until you've hit that roller coaster, you know. And uh, that's the
1: thing about comedy in the live audience, you know, like there is like zero safety net. Zero. zero, Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: (laughs) Zero. I mean, I bomb so many times. And if you don't bomb, (laughs) if you don't bomb, if you don't bomb, then you're not any anyone who says they haven't bombed is a liar. They haven't done it more than 10 times. It's just, of course, you're going to bomb. You're going to bomb by you you, you want to be funny and then but y'all you you, but you have to have your point of view it's just it's a never ending i find stand up consistently humbling <laughs> and when you really get into the art of it stand up is by far the toughest thing in comedy i've had to do by far well the other
1: thing about stand up too is like even if you have a joke that works you have to try something else like another version of it at least at some point like you know you you constantly have to tweak it just to know
2: (laughs) know brother yeah you yeah you spoke the truth man i've had more than i can imagine just so many times where you know you you just got to keep writing 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 and you have to keep evolving your point of view and then all of a sudden the world changes and you have to evolve it again and then you have to start from scratch you know and it's uh you know I, i really worry about the state of obviously Everyone in, in, in the industry worries about the state of live comedy right now. And, uh, yeah. you know, trying yeah, that, that,
1: that's like number one on the when the heck are we going to get that back list? Because uh, that's a, a form of entertainment where the audience is so integral that you can't really imagine. And
2: that's why I keep saying, you know, I hate to be so repetitive, but that all always point to that vaccine. The only way yeah. to, well, only we were talking about any of these, any of these like frayed ends of the separated ends of rope. That the only way to connect those two rope, you need that vaccine to connect those two frayed ends, man. Because it's it just that's that should just be the end game, you know, for all of us to think whether it takes twelve months, yeah, eighteen months. Yeah, those people months, working
1: on that vaccine. That's really just so about. you know. After you get us the vaccine, we're gonna name a holiday after you. It's gonna be like the <laughs> like, like the the Doctor Zach Grauman. Hey, maybe holiday, the people at Betty Crocker will be
2: a part of that, you, you know, maybe get the Defensive Protection Act and, you know, just really enable the people. But good old Betty Crocker, you know.
1: So you if go. you want a holiday yeah. named after you get in that lab, the Betty Crocker vaccine, vaccine, you know, give us back with custard.
2: It, you know, I got a custard back, you know, I get a custard pie with it, you know. Yeah. yeah your holiday your vaccine
1: will be sponsored by, yeah. by yeah. everybody <laughs> yeah you, you get a shot
2: oh and i got it i got a delicious brownie you know right with it so it's just great
1: that that scientist coming out for the press conference to announce the vaccine is going to look like a race car driver he's just going to have like corporate logos all over his <laughs> white coat it'll be like this vaccine it'll be like the Ricky Bobby.
2: Bobby of vaccine researchers you know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah that's what it's yes
1: gonna be. Mm-hmm. and then he comes out and he I mean what are the lines from, from that movie freak it'd be like uh <laughs> <gotta> go <laughs> he comes out to the podium and he's like
0: you ain't like first uh, or last?
2: Yeah.
1: If you're not, if you're not first or last, yeah, yeah, like that, that's yeah what I mean, thank you, Zach. Yeah, exactly. That's what I like, he's that's just, what what just gonna before,
2: guys. yeah. That's what he, I mean, he literally <laughs> gonna. He literally is just gonna, you know, send out the uh, basically the syringe and go shake and bake right there. So. Yes, shake and bake. That's what <laughs> yeah. he's gonna say. That he's gonna shake that yeah. fucking vaccine. Gotta shake it and then bake it. Yep. That's what and that's then all plunge about. it into himself. Plunge it into myself. <laughs> Whoa! I'm immune, guys, and I smell like pie. So I don't know. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, that's a fantastic note uh, to end yes. on. Uh, <laughs> can,
2: just like we say, scripted it, just like we rehearsed all of this. Oh yeah, oh yeah, this thing went. We exactly rehearsed good. it, and people don't know. Are they really improvising? No, this is tightly scripted. That Zach wrote himself. It's a great script, and we had we, a whole
0: list of talking points. Yeah, and we hit none, none of, of them. them. Maybe one. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it, guys. Well, that's why I appreciate you coming
2: <laughs> on our podcast with me and Joel McHale because, like, we just we totally. We just, we should, we should subtitle me and Joel's podcast as off the rails, but yeah. But we call it the darkest timeline podcast because it's named after a community, a community subplot that the community fans really love. (laughs) Yeah, the fans would recognize. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey man, this
1: was a blast. Uh, All the best to Tran and the family. And you and Evelyn too and your
2: family too, brother. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Stay safe and healthy and hopefully we'll have a chance to see each other in person. can't wait. And, And worst case scenario, if we're trapped for another like series of months, then we'll we'll do another great podcast swap of uh, let's
2: do it 2020. Let's do the man! Like, I'll, 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 I'll be join back the darkest on the timeline again. Yeah, back on the darkest timeline. I'll be on on Yangcast. Yeah, that'll be great. Well,
1: thank you so much, Ken. You're the best. Appreciate the hell out of you, brother. Thank you,
2: brother. Much love, brother. Stay safe. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, guys, so much. Thank you. And there you have it. Second episode of Yang Speaks.
0: Tune in next week. Every Monday, we'll have new content, new guests, new interesting takes on the world. And stay tuned as well. We're trying to throw some bonus content out there on days that don't start with M-O-N. So keep you on your toes and keep the conversations interesting. Thank you all. Yang gang out.